Welcome to the Army Talk Fast Five, sponsored by Takeoff, the AM Consumer Retail Group, and Manhattan Associates. Today is May 6, 2021. I am your host, Chris Walton, and I am joined, as always, by Ann Mazinga. And this is a pretty special day for us. You pretty excited? Yes, I think I alluded to this earlier, but this is for me the uh, Dave Matthews Band Live at Luther College edition for Omni Talk. So, which for those of you who don't know Dave Matthews Band, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, it was a pretty remarkable concert. So, um, th- we're really excited to be here today. Hope hoping that everybody's recovering from their post Cinco de Mayo uh, margaritas at El Jardin in Wrigleyville. Um, it is uh, quite a wonderful day for retail conversation. So. I think we should kick it off. Yeah, I'm about an 18, like on a scale of one to 10. I think I've got the Ocho in, in, in the number here today. I'm pretty I'm pretty pumped about this. I still have no idea what that ref, that Dave Matthews, Matthews reference is, even though you told me about it like three times. But, but yeah, no, we're sitting here, we're, we're, we're live with the, uh, with the omni-channel marketing class from the Kellogg Business School. And we are here with Professor Jim Lasinski and his class, which is about what, I think about 30 people strong here at last count. but. But Jim, actually 41, we're up to 41 people at last count, so that's amazing. Uh, keep growing. Uh, Jim, tell us a little bit about the class. Tell us a little bit about yourself here. Just set the audience, get the audience table set here with what they can expect. Awesome. Well, uh, and Chris, nice to be with you. Thanks for the invitation on behalf of uh, uh, the Kellogg uh, Business School students and myself. Uh, and I'm more of a YouTube live at Red Rocks guy than Dave yeah, Matthews, but we we'll, we'll talk up, we'll fair. talk about that later. Uh, yeah, so um, you know we've we've got a class that focuses on omnichannel marketing. Uh, basically, how do you, as a brand steward, a brand owner, manufacturer? I mean, I guess what retailers often refer to as the vendor, uh, right? How do you uh, get your product from uh, your point of production? to the point of consumption. What channels do you take? What routes to market? And so we look at everything from a traditional retail route to market, uh, DTC and owned and operated, uh, showrooms, pop-up stores, those kinds of things. We look at the big platforms like Amazon and Ollie. Uh, uh, This week, we're talking about actually wholesalers, resellers, distributors, those kinds of intermediaries. And we'll also look at some kind of new and emerging things uh, uh, like social shopping, uh, Facebook Live, uh, Ollie Live, those kinds of things as well. Very cool. And you have a new book, right? If I'm not mistaken, like there's a new book coming out, right? Yeah, uh, thanks uh, for the for the shout out on that. It's called the AI Marketing Canvas, and uh, my co-author from the University of Virginia Darden School of Business, uh, Raj Venkatesan, and I, Dr. Raj and I, put together a sort of a five step roadmap for how brands can uh, get started and should be thinking about implementing uh, AI and specifically machine learning into their marketing toolkits, which, as both of you know, is a hot hot topic. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I wanted to bring that up. I was, I was, I was actually interviewing the chief supply chain officer at Nordstrom yesterday, and she mentioned how her job has just gotten so complex that it actually requires AI to now yeah. run it effectively, and she's had to learn that pretty extensively, which I thought was a really poignant statement for her to make in that discussion. And and yeah, this is going to be great because Jim, like you said, like the intersections of brands and retailers, that's, you know, that divide is becoming more and more blurred each and every day. And I'm curious to see as we go through the headlines this week, how that topic continues to, to permeate everything we do and talk about here on OmniTalk. So, and should we get going? Should we roll? Let's do it. Yeah. We have a special little announcement though, this week from one of our sponsors, Chris, I think you should tell us about that. We you, do. you have some, you're keeping some, some high-class company these days. Yeah, this, this is some high-class company. So yeah, so if you notice, one of our sponsors this week is Manhattan Associates, and their upcoming Momentum Connect event is on May 25th and 27th. 
There's going to be keynotes from an MIT expert on human-robotic interaction, a NASA engineer working on the Mars rover, Suchurita Kodali, the vice president and principal analyst for Forrester Research, and some guy who likes to talk about omnichannel retailing who might be yours truly. Which one of those is not like the other? I think it's pretty easy to see. Uh, you can see the, uh, we'll put the registration uh, link in the uh, notes for the podcast. So if you're interested in attending that, uh, you know, be sure to check it out. But it promises to be a pretty fun event. And as Jim was just mentioning, order management technology, point of sale technology, cloud commerce is fundamental to how all this is going to play out. And in our opinion, Manhattan Associates is definitely one of the leaders in that respect. All right, let's get to the show. We've got a great show in today's Fast Five. We're going to talk about Walmart's minimum wage recalcitrance, one of my favorite things to say, and it's not easy to say, the big Macy's kerfuffle over its mobile self-checkout app. We're going to talk about Instacart and Snap benefits. And then we're going to finish with a little discussion on SoFi and offering crypto as part of its rewards program. But first, we are going to take off with headline number one. And Anne, I believe you have the honors today. I do. Okay, so we're kicking it off. We're going to give a kind of a softball question to get things started. Just let people warm up. All right. So eMarketer this week released their list of the top 10 U.S. retail e-com companies for 2021. So I'm going to run through that list quickly. um, Also with their their revenue in the billions. So number one, obviously, Amazon coming in at $367 followed by Walmart at $64 billion. So just let that soak in here for a minute. Um, next, we have eBay at number three, $38 billion. Apple at number four, $33 billion. Best Buy, number five, coming in at $20 billion. Closely, neck and neck with Target at number six at $20 billion as well. We have the Home Depot at number seven at $20 billion. Three, a threefer there. And uh, Kroger at number eight at $15 billion. Costco at number nine at 14 billion and number 10 is Wayfair coming just under 14 billion. So Kellogg students, what we want to know is what do you think this top 10 list means when you think about the future of retail? How, what does that indicate for you? Hey everyone. My name is uh, Carlos Gomez. Uh, so very happy to be here. Um, in regards to the future of retail, I do believe that some of these trends are just continuing to show that the people that are investing in their e-commerce infrastructure just continue to win. So I know 2020 uh, was a tough year for everyone. However, when you look at kind of the rankings, uh, Amazon just continues to dominate. uh, And then the ongoing investment that Walmart has made over the years continue to show that they continue to be very strong. And even somebody like a Home Depot, I mean, you think of things like lumber and things of that sort, but they've continued to invest in their e-commerce space over the years. So it's kind of no surprise to me that they continue to stay in that uh, top 10 uh, um, top e-commerce sales. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And are, are there any other, those are, so those are the companies that stood out for you, Carlos, Michael, Michael, what's your thoughts on this? You know, a lot of it strikes me as just the importance of having a recognizable brand already. And the one that stood out to me actually was Costco. I had actually mm. for another class of mine, I had like kind of had to, done some research into them with their 10Ks. And they actually specifically don't really stress e-commerce and don't see it as a significant part of their sales, which, you know, consistent with their warehousing model. So to see them in the top 10 e-commerce companies, um, 
and I guess I'd be curious to wonder, like, you know, what metrics is that based on necessarily? But, um, you know, that's just one where it's, it's such a powerful existing brand in the space. And if they're not even stressing e-commerce, they're already winning there. Um, I think that says a lot as opposed to a bunch of other companies that are probably putting a lot more as a yeah. resources in. That's a really good point. I don't, I, I don't know if Anne or I, Andy, I don't know if you saw that reading that I didn't see that either, but you're right. I mean, it, it, Costco has pretty much shunned curbside pickup. They've only gotten into it in the last couple of months. And that data point is definitely in these figures when you look at these retailers. So to your to your question, Michael, I think you know what's in here is it's online sales, it's probably digitally originated sales like curbside pickup or buy online pickup in store. And Costco's pretty much shunned that. So to your point, it actually shows that there's probably a huge massive upside in some of these numbers for somebody like at Costco. And what do you think on that point? Or in general about the list? Yeah, I think I tend to agree with, you know, what, what Carlos was saying earlier. I think that these numbers are very much an indicator of the last year and what we saw in the pandemic. I mean, you you see people posting huge numbers like Target and Kroger and Walmart. And I think that the truth will really be in the next six months and where things go and, and what we're able to really see these same these same companies put up. I think e-commerce numbers will still stay relatively high, but as far as like the total amount of business goes, I- I'm not sure that we'll see the same, quite the same thing. You know what really stood out to me here was actually Walmart. Um, and actually, as I as we did all the topics this week, I'm curious to see what the classics. I actually was starting to get a little canary in the coal mine on Walmart here. Walmart's when you read those numbers, like Amazon, Walmart's only at $64 billion, and they have 4,600 plus stores. And then you had Target down there. What did you say? At like $20 billion, Home Depot at that level, like even Costco at the level that was just talked about. It feels like for all the, the, all the fancy talk of Walmart over these last few years in terms of all their digital investments, it feels like, and Kroger's like at $15 billion, and they're just starting that journey. It feels like Walmart should be much, much higher than that. Kimberly, any thoughts on Walmart or anything else related to this list? Yes. Um, On that point uh, with Walmart, you know, they were so brick and mortar focused. And it's definitely interesting to see a company that has longstanding brick and mortar bones, you know, really try to connect the dots across their different channels. So I know that they have put a lot of headway into that, but definitely at, you know, slightly probably a disadvantage when definitely picking up steam compared to maybe what Amazon and some of the competitors are doing. Another interesting point is that, you know, data is really going to be the name of the game. We talked a lot about this in class, but all the many of the companies that you mentioned all have a key data or media arm that they're heavily investing in, whether that be Walmart Connect or Kroger Precision Marketing. So definitely looking forward to see how that continues to, uh, you know, differentiate these companies in the future. Right. Yeah. That's a whole another added layer to this too. As those numbers get bigger, those digital ad networks get bigger and they get more and more powerful as well. Hence why you've seen the rush and flood, which I know you guys have talked about in class too, in terms of everyone trying to stand up their own digital ad networks. All right. Well, let's look at headline number two. I think headline number two is the one I was most excited to talk about here with the class today. Because I'm really curious what the kind of business leader uh, group of future, uh, gosh, let me try to say that better, what the business leaders of tomorrow have to think about this topic. But uh, that is that Walmart seems to want to continue to double down on their fight against the $15 minimum wage. Now, for background, many retailers from Amazon, Target, Best Buy have been hiking their minimum wage to $15 an hour. 
But Walmart, the largest employer that employs over one and a half million people, has consistently shot the argument down. Now, for perspective, Walmart's annual revenue last year increased by $35 billion to more than $500 billion in total, on which it earned $22 billion in profit. So here's the question for you, Kellogg Business School class. And this question comes from the AM Consumer and Retail Group, which puts Ann and I on the spot every week with a tough question. This week, they're bringing the question to you. So here it is. Walmart CEO Doug McMillan began working at Walmart as an hourly associate, and he recently said that raising wages to a blanket $15 minimum would compromise a ladder of opportunity that encourages its employees to strive to earn more as they climb the ranks. Should we agree or disagree with Mr. McMillan's rationale? What do you guys think? Yeah, so actually, I've I've been following OmniTalk, so I, I love your guys's kind of features of the of the Walmart, Thanks. Amazon, like back and forth. I, I think it's fascinating, um, and I think you know, in in particular, this ladder of opportunity. I think you you it was like a Houdini move. That's how you guys described it before. Which I thought <laughs> it was really funny. Um, I I'm just curious why the position has to be that like low, like raising the bottom rung has to compromise the upper rungs. To me, it seems like a natural kind of like comeback is like, well, why can't you just increase everything slightly? I know there's a whole lot of economics and profits, you know, plays there that need to be discussed, but it seems like that's the piece that's kind of missing. You know, the argument of like, well, we can't raise the bottom rung because it compromises upper rungs. Well, why can't you just kind of shift everything up? Like, why isn't that being talked about? Right. Or why wouldn't you just shift down everything in that case, too? So, yeah. Yeah. No. So you're so you're not buying it. You're not buying this as well. Um, OK, interesting. Yeah. And thanks for the support, too. That's awesome. All right, Tracy, what do you think? Hey, guys, thanks again. Um, I, I, you know, in, in addition to Amanda's point about, you know, shifting the wrongs, it was also seems like, um, you know, they are concerned about the amount of incentives they would then have to create if they, you know, raise the minimum wage, because this really sounds like it's an issue of how do we continue to get employees or motivate employees to want to progress in, you know, within the company. And I think, I think that's a real issue for any company established or growing. Um, and so that, you know, that that's a real concern. I would argue that, you know, baseline wage pay for, you know, an employee should be increased. And then you need to reevaluate your incentive structure. If that is, you know, in fact, the key concern, which it, to me, is this concern that the CEO is raising indicates that there's a concern about future incentives for employees to continue to raise up in the company. Yeah, Tracy, let me ask you a question. Now. I want to probe that a little bit. So you bring up this point. Like, it should the incentives to work hard and to achieve should those be dependent at all on what that actual minimum wage starting point is, or does that come intrinsically for something else in your mind? Um. I think there's a couple different ways to think about incentives, right? And that all comes down to company culture. Do you incentivize employees with compensation or added compensation structures? Um, or do you incentivize, you know, through culture? Um, so, you know, without knowing too much about how internal, you know, baseball works at Walmart, you know, I'd be very curious to, you know, what that would mean for them. Um, that's just what screamed to me when I hear that. So if you don't want to do that because we're concerned about, you know, employees wanting to move forward in the company, it sounds like that's, you know, that's a concern. And so that's, it's probably less about culture, more about um, uh, additional compensation or other monetary um, incentives that the company probably wants to consider. That's, in the future. Good. that's a good point. Yeah. I haven't actually, the culture part of it is not a part of the conversation I've had yet to this point. So that's interesting to hear. Thanks for bringing that perspective up. Uh, Ashley, I hope I'm saying that right. Tell me if I'm not, please correct me. Um, but what, what's your thoughts here? 
So um, as was interesting, as someone who worked in corporate finance and worked at Walmart at a point in time, I do think um, the increase in minimum wage will really improve productivity um, just because a lot of the employees are really demoralized. And so I do think they're kind of ignoring some other um, aspects of increasing compensation that I think they will really benefit from. Um, And so I really do think that they should kind of really consider that instead of focusing on um, just how they would climb the ladder. But I think they would be really surprised. And also, I think we're ignoring how many percentage of Walmart employees receive government incentives, um, such as food stamps, as well as cash assistance. And so I'm pretty sure um, having that wage stability um, and not having to kind of focus on how they're going to feed their children with the next meal would allow them to really focus and be really good employees for Walmart. Like, are any concerns here on brand? Like, how, I mean, do you do you think there's also some brand reputation risk by potentially taking this position? Honestly, I think it's on brand for Walmart to be quite frank. So it doesn't. Think it's on brand, okay. I, I do. Yeah. I think like in the world, Target has really been known to be uh, forward thinking in regards to their workforce, especially when they remove the um, criminal background check. So to be frank, when I think of progressive in wage, I don't think of Walmart. You don't. So it's kind of already in the brand a little bit. So they've got they've got the ability to double down on this somewhat. I saw there was another hand raised. Jim. To me, it's a false dichotomy. I don't I don't understand why it has to be an either or. Either we pay you a fair living wage right. or we give you a chance to advance. Like, shouldn't a great employer offer you both? And doesn't the art the logic chain of the argument mean like there should be no minimum wage at all? So why don't we just start everyone at like two bits? Like I don't I don't I don't I don't really get it. You know, I don't it doesn't make sense. And anything you you'd throw in here? I, I think it's hard to even think about getting on the ladder when you don't have, if they're not paying a fair minimum wage. If everybody else is going to be paying $15 an hour, all of your competitors, I mean, you can't think about moving forward if you can't pay your bills now. So how do you address that issue right now? And Walmart being one of the largest employers in the entire country, I mean, you have to be thinking about how you're going to um, first give people the opportunity, want have them want to make the choice to work for you versus your competitors, and then worry about, you know, how do we kind of get them to continue? It's it's starting smaller, I think. Yeah. And not everyone wants to ascend the ladder. That's the other point mm-hmm. that I think is important to think about. That's not the thing that everybody wants to do. And so why should the people that don't want to ascend the ladder be hurt just to give those other people the opportunity to ascend the ladder by the definition of your logic? So that was a, that was great, you guys. Thank you so much for chiming in. Appreciate all those thoughts. Let's keep on rolling here. Keep the topics moving. And you want to hit number three? Okay, well, we have another discussion uh, that relates to retail employees, but this time we're talking about Macy's. So a union that represents 11,000 Macy's employees nationwide has won its case against the retailer over use of the scan uh, and pay app by no longer requiring customers to complete their purchases at a cash register and therefore not allocating commissions for employees in departments like men's suiting and cosmetics. So Macy's now, as part of the ruling, must provide back pay to employees at six of the stores who brought the suit. And now here's where it gets real sad. <laughs> the total sales that they have to back pay on are a mere $2,000. Uh, so if you'll recall, Macy's rolled out the self-checkout feature to all of its stores back in 2018, but then recently, uh, this past October, took that feature offline for what Chris will say in air quotes as tech improvements, um, and they have not sure. said when they will bring 
that feature back online. So question for the class, um, as we're thinking about new ways to deploy checkout free or some other labor saving technology, when especially when we're talking about commission-based retailers, how are you all thinking about innovation um, as we approach this issue? Would you shut down that scan pay app like immediately do you keep it uh in the dark like macy's did in october or are there other ways that you would look to facilitating this kind of experience in store and this is a this is a hot topic Whoa, hot topic go. all right there we go gavin you're up first i think you have to treat it as a as a complement to the selling process not a replacement to the selling process so I think it should help them find the product faster. I think if they want to check out on the app, I think that's great. I think they should still have the ability to talk to a person if they wanted to facilitate that transaction, but then execute the transaction on the app. And I think that if you want to maintain uh, both of those uh, methods of purchase, I think uh, thinking of it as a complement that you take some percentage of the margin and distribute it as a commission to the in-store uh, employees. Gavin, let me ask you, let me ask you more about that. Cause I, I think that's a really interesting point. Like, do you kind of listening to you, do you kind of wonder like how it even got to this point? Like that doesn't seem, is that even like a hard solve in your mind? Like, or is that running through your head at all? I'm just curious. I have dealt with something similar uh, in a, in a work issue. So um, that's kind of how we ended up resolving it. Right. Um, so that, that's how I got to, I think that has been the best way for us to solve it. And I, I think that you have to think of technology as a complement, not a replacement, but then you don't have to say, I'm not going to replace this. You kind of let it take its natural course. So I, I think you have to let these things kind of play out a little more organically. Yeah, I'm kind of, so. I, I, it's interesting you say that because, and I don't know what you think. I'm like kind of surprised this got to the lawsuit stage where like, I would have thought somebody would have raised this internally and then Macy's would have just been like, okay, yeah, we'll just pull all the sales for the app and we'll give you all percentage credit based on some metric of however many sales we have at that location done, you know, like why the hell didn't that happen? I want, I don't think you've worked in a department store that runs on commission. Cause let me tell you, there is some cutthroat people that work in that industry. I was in it for a very short period of time. Sure. And then That's I got fair. out because it is cutthroat. Uh, well, just am I case, missing the point? Is it too hard then? Is it like, like, what do you think on that? Well, part of me is like, okay, you're going to do a commission sale, but then you're not going to help them check out. Like part of the whole experience when you're in a commission situation, I think is, you know, to Gavin's point, it can be enhanced with technology, but like that end-to-end touch point, like you should be connected to the customer in order to get that commission. Like, you know, when I was at J Crew, we put it, wrote it on a piece of receipt paper and put it on top of their items at the counter. Like there's some connection between the end checkout process and, you know, whether or not they've been your customer for 10 years or whatever. Um, I think that this could be done better with, you know, the assistance of technology. But I have to say, when you look at when you do break down that $2,000, okay, they get on average, let's say on average, they get 8% commission. On two thousand dollars in sales, that's a hundred and sixty dollars divided by six stores. So it's twenty seven dollars a sale or a store. store I'm sorry yeah. of these of each of these stores, which probably doesn't even pay their union dues, which is a whole separate yeah. issue. That we yeah, this is the into. union making a statement, I think, too, as technology is yeah. coming, which is an important part of the story, which we should talk about. Ryan, you had you had your hand up. What are you thinking here? Yeah, so we actually had a speaker uh, a few weeks ago. Um, yeah. It was the 
um, a large um, work and fashion uh, shoe brand. And they, it was less in terms of, uh, and they had franchise stores. So it was less in terms of like the actual mm. worker model. Yeah. They, they built a whole um, a compensation around online orders to um, give the franchise stores um, uh, their share of those orders. So uh, I think it's definitely doable. And I think Macy's obviously is capable of uh, implementing some kind of model and, um, Obviously, it's the unions that, that force their hand in, in this uh, example. But it makes sense from a retailer's perspective to ensure that your employees are demonstrating the goods, demonstrating the stuff. And even if the sale ends up being on a device or online, you still want your employees to be engaged in the sales process. Yeah. That's yeah, I would I just... Oh, go ahead, Jim. I'm sorry, Chris. I would just jump in and echo a plus one to Ryan's point, right? Like, you know, we talk about omnichannel being the opportunity to give your shopper the ability to buy what she wants, when she wants, where she wants, how she wants, right? And so, you know, that might mean fully through an associate. Uh, it might mean fully through technology, or it might mean a little bit of each. And so, you know, my thought here is similar to what you're all talking about is that, you know, we shouldn't let our own systems, whether those are compensation systems, training systems, uh, POS systems, kind of get in the way of delivering that ultimate and consumer omnichannel experience. That's like, you know, what, what we all should be in the business of trying to figure out how to deliver. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think this is just, and you got to have the final word on this, but like, I, I think this is another example of like Jeff Gannett under his leadership, just missing it again. Like, like we've talked about, we talked about number one, this thing was not a good implementation from the beginning. No. Like it was a scan and go checkout free system, but you actually had to stand in line to still get out of the store so you could take all the security right. tags off everything. So that's why no one was probably using it. And then two, you you missed this to begin with. Like omnichannel alignment on incentives is like course load 101, right? Like that's first year business school stuff. Like you have to have that happen. And here they are missing it in something that sounds like it should have at least been much more well thought out than it was. Um, but I don't and you're know. surprised by that? I, I know, <laughs> right? I'm surprised. Yeah, right. And Macy's I, I mean, I'm kind of surprised Macy's had commissions. Da, da, da. I didn't know that, but like, it's hard to tell. Sometimes it's hard to tell that. Like, no, 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 no offense to them, but like, I've got, I've told the story before. I got into a Macy's and said, "Where can I find the St. Patrick's Day clothes for my kids?" And I was asked by the employee, "What's St. Patrick's Day?" Like, that's a real story that really happened, and so. Like you've got to be thinking about how you're solving those types of problems with technology. But, but Anne, I want to put you on the spot though, too quickly, like, cause you have worked in these types of environments. Like, what do you think the right answer was here? Well, I think Jim's point is right on. I don't think you can think about it the way that it, it used to be. I think that you have to think about, um, you know, it kind of reminds me of like how the online sales are being attributed to stores and mm -hmm. how mall owners want to be capturing those when they're looking at leases and revenues that are coming to the store. Like you can't use the old metrics. So I think that you have to, you have to figure out some way to incent employees to still be servicing the customer, however, and whenever they, they want to have a contact point, um, and maybe find other ways of doing that than, you know, pure, you sold this item to this person data. I think it has to be kind of reconfigured and shaken up a little bit. Yeah. And I think you could roll this out too. Like, okay, here's how we're going to do some type of alignment. And oh, by the way, the whole idea of technology is we can redeploy you and you should be able to drive basket sizes on these tickets. So let's measure that and make sure we're all holding hands and see that that's happening as part of the definition of whether or not this technology is working. 
Exactly. All right, well, let's keep rolling. Number four. All right, this was a big one. I think this is probably the biggest story of the week, actually, even though we've had a lot of fun talking about a lot of things already. But Instacart is now growing the amount of, of retailers on its platform by which consumers can use their SNAP benefits, aka food stamps. So Instacart announced on Thursday, April 29th, the expansion of its integration with EBT and SNAP to include several major supermarkets. The service will begin accepting food stamps from them. Keep in mind, they already accept food stamps and SNAP from all the in-food line locations, but now they're adding Publix, the SaveMart companies, and 32 price chopper market locations, which brings the total now of store locations that accept Instacart for SNAP at 4,000 stores across 38 states. Also, another important thing to note in order to subsidize the cost for SNAP participants, Instacart will also waive delivery or pickup fees through June 16, 2021 on up to the first three SNAP orders for each customer with a valid EBT card associated with their Instacart account. So question for the class, what does this announcement, if anything, say about Instacart and the growing power of its marketplace slash advertising network. And I'm very curious to hear this from the perspective of the omni-channel marketing class. Michael, looks like you're up first. It's interesting to hear about this Instacart story. I didn't know this, but the timing is interesting because I just saw either today or yesterday, there was an article in the Financial Times talking about how a lot of these food delivery companies, such as like Uber or like Deliveroo in the UK, were finding that a lot of the same like VC or, you know, private equity backers who backed them were backing a lot of these grocery store delivery apps. And that there was a ton of money going into that space with particularly since they had these like dark grocery store locations in like metro areas. And I have to wonder if that's related with all that money flying into these kind of upstart apps that this is Insta Instacart kind of responding to the new, to the uh, new competition on their soil. Yeah, interesting point. Yeah, interesting point. Yeah, or, you know, a further extension of the strategy that they've been, you know, planning to deploy for some time. What, what does everyone think? You know, this is obviously, you know, been heightened by the pandemic, but was a trend even before that? Uh, and not just in the U.S., but as was pointed out elsewhere in the world. Um, but, you know, I mean, there's some equity issues here, right? So it's not just a, a, a matter of, um, you know, a business discussion, although that's an important part of it, you know, um, especially if people are, you know, uh, trying to, to be safe, uh, maybe you're, you're immunocompromised, you're not feeling comfortable, able to get down to the store, you know, you're caring for some sick folks at home, right? Well, guess what? You know, the virus uh, is sort of agnostic to your income level, uh, what whether you have the ability to sign up with a credit card to get those groceries delivered or whether you don't. And so I think this is a nice move on Instacart's part to recognize that, you know, everyone deserves at all times, but especially during pandemic times, the ability uh, to have, you know, livelihood food delivered safely. And um, uh, kudos to them in my book, at least for figuring out a way to do that, not just for some folks, but now for everyone. Yeah, and, and 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 I should have said this more clearly too. Like, this is not you cannot redeem SNAP benefits online in many states. It's not an easy thing to do with a lot of retailers. And now Instacart can become that first place, you know, in the mind of many consumers. Dan, what's your points here? Yeah, so I, I kind of have a plus one uh, to you, Professor uh, Lashinsky. I mean, I think that this is a great move, just from a uh, social goodwill. Um, but I also think that there's just a good play here about getting, you know, volume and people on the platform. So, 
you know, more people are probably facing, you know, had wages come under pressure. They are in, you know, there's, there's been good documentation around, you know, people that have lost their jobs. And so people might be on snap benefits temporarily, but using Instacart uh, for their shopping. And, you know, I think that we've all talked a lot about behavior change over the course of the pandemic and what a great move by, by uh, Instacart to say, yeah, your snap benefits, your cash, your, you know, all forms of payment will, will accept because it's probably more important to them to grab as many users during this period of time and see this behavior as normal as the normal way to pay for um, groceries. And, you know, that sticks after the pandemic, right? As those folks roll off of those benefits, those that do, um, they probably stay Instacart users, right? You know, you're making me think of something too, Dan, like that first chart that Ann read at the very beginning. I'm curious how much of that volume is coming through Instacart. Because a lot of it probably is. I know a lot of Kroger's is, for for example, at least that's the word on the street. Costco. Um, so it's curious how you're saying that's that. That's probably where like all the Costco, Costco right? Like, yeah. yeah, it's fat, pretty fascinating to think about. And uh, uh, let's go back to Ryan. Ryan's got a question. Hot topic here. I think, honestly, this is seems to be almost a late reaction from what Amazon and Amazon Fresh did. I believe um, earlier in 2020, when the pandemic hit, probably May or June 2020, 20, uh, Amazon Fresh added a lot of um, states to the EBT program. So I think it's honestly just probably a reaction to market share that Amazon was snapping up in the, in the last year in the grocery delivery space. Yeah, Amazon's been trying to go after this too. Who does this hurt, if anyone? I, I think that's the real interesting point to me. Um, and what do you what do you think here? Like, do you think if you're a retail, is there any retailers that come to your mind in terms of just who this is a punch in the gut for? Well, I think you're, it's going to be a punch in the gut for the, 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 the regional grocers. You know, if you, oh, if really? you don't have your e-com hmm. platform set up and you're going to be competing now for these EBT and SNAP dollars where people, I think maybe we're going to, you cause you're the corner store and now they don't need, or you're on the bus line. Like now they don't need to do that. They can have groceries delivered. Um, that's going to be a real challenge for those grocers um, who are just latent in their in their adoption of technology. I think that the bigger thing here though is is actually the cost. So you said that they're going to subsidize the cost till June. That's not very long. That's a month away. And so oh. yes, you know, to Dan's point, you you are giving people a free month which I think you can get some like you can find ways to get a free month of Instacart already. So I think that that's a little bit of some PR hype and some way that they're going to need to figure out how to subsidize that. However, this is where I think that the advertising and marketing platform really comes into play because I think this is a key opportunity for some of these CPG companies to say, look, we're going to give you $5 off of we're going to buy your cereal for you. We're going to take that out of EBT so that you can take Instacart or hang on to Instacart or figure out ways for um, them to build their, their marketing and advertising platform, them being Instacart um, more so than it is that they're, you know, taking some share or taking business away from somebody. I think so, that's where they're going to start to build it. So glad you said that. Cause I was going to disagree with you vehemently that that I don't think it matters because I think you're right. The advertising platform will continue to expand and grow. And there's going to be a ways for the brands to get involved in that and reach a lot of new consumers in a much more direct and personal way than they were through traditional shopping routes. I also don't agree with the point about the regional grocers because I think the regional grocers will just end up playing into Instacart where they can in order to make this happen. I think the big loser here. And this, I said this in the beginning, I teased it. I think it's Walmart. Like if I'm Doug McMillan, I put this on social media. The biggest regret I have, if I'm Doug McMillan right now, is that I wasted $3 billion on Jet when I should have been buying Instacart at that point oh, in time. I'm the, 
done and gone though. You no, can't. I don't know. I don't agree. I mean, like this is the Walmart is you look at Amazon and it's delivery fee target and shipped. Walmart is sitting on an Island here now where Instacart is grabbing same day delivery, grocery mind share with every other grocer out there. And what is Walmart going to do against the power of that? I think I still, I still think that's a really interesting question. Jim, I saw you shaking your head though. So what are you thinking here? Well, I mean, isn't, is, isn't Walmart, hasn't they placed their bet on, um, uh, Order online, pick up curbside. I mean, this was their Super Bowl commercial two years yeah, ago, right? With the, yeah. the Batmobile and what have you. Remember in that ad? I mean, I think, you know, they place their bet as you're going to come pick it up yourself. We'll build those lanes out in the parking lot for delivery. Whereas, as you said, Target and others, you know, said, no, actually, I'm going to partner with Shipped or a service to actually take care of the last mile. I think Walmart said, no, you're going to come to me for the last mile. So here we are. Mm-hmm. And there, and this is like a broad shot right at their sweet spot, right? Like, you know, snap benefits, like lower income demographics. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see because like not everyone can do that. Not everyone, not everyone can do curbside and pick up to that degree. So, and, and, and over time, people continue to want to buy things online and have them delivered for ease, especially if you're working two jobs. All right. And let's close this out. Headline number five. All right. So, SoFi social finance for those of you who don't know all of the condensed <laughs> lingo that we I apparently are using now sofi is an online lending and banking platform and they announced this past week that users of their credit card can now convert their cashback rewards not to travel points or upgrades in hotels but to cryptocurrency so their customers can now apply 2% cashback points to Bitcoin or Ethereum, which can be invested through their investment platform, SoFi Active Invest. Um, And that is also backed by Coinbase for those of you super crypto nerds who are super into this, in case you were going to ask me that. There you go. Um, And then also uh, their CEO is saying that, you know, this is what they really believe their members are going to continue to want. The number one thing that their their, uh, members and credit card users were asking for was stocks and fractional shares. The number two thing they wanted was cryptocurrency. Hot button. Everybody's talking about it. No kidding. What does the class have to say about this? Are you going to stop using your points on your credit card for cash back and trade them in for crypto? Who's going to do it? Crypto, the marketing dream, the marketer's dream, the brand marketer's dream here, untapped, untapped asset. Yeah, I was I was hoping that my Discover card instead of giving me one percent cash back will give me some like options and puts and calls on the on the bond market. Oh, <laughs> uh, Gary Kim, what do you think? Hi guys. Um, so for me, uh, so I have five different credit cards uh, based because uh, um, spending on different category give you a different percentage of return on your spending. So I'm a little bit of a credit card nurse. Um, so I would still use on maybe the one of the uh, the best way to give me the best return. For example, when I use a, a chess card, um, it is best for me to use it as um, travel because it gives you like 3x points or 4.5 points x. Uh, but if you transfer it to a cryptocurrency, it only gives you like percent right so mm-hmm. I, I would still try to utilize the best way possible to get the best return on the uh, points I think uh, um, 
it is to I, I think a, the way that trying to do is uh, I, I don't know maybe the another marketing tool because uh, they they know that a lot of people use the credit card to get the rewards and um, and also cryptocurrency is a hot issue these days. Um, so I think they're just trying to utilize as much participants as possible. But for me, it was not um, as appealing. Really not as appealing. Okay. I, I love this. I'm, I'm, that's interesting to hear you say that, Gary. I, 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 I love this. I thought, like, I, I love this for a lot of reasons. Once I think it's catchy, I think it's just like it catches your eye. It's different. It gives you the chance to experiment with something at a pretty low risk, which you know, loyalty reward points for me have always been that like, okay, how do I just buy something that I wasn't going to buy otherwise? Cause it wasn't worth the risk. But the other part I love about this too, is like, it's in, it's immediately transferable. So now I've got an asset through my activity that I could buy or sell to other people, right. Uh, in, in theory on an open market. I think that's, that's a really fascinating play here when you talk about loyalty and you, like, you could almost get a sense of like, it doesn't have to be these coins either, but you could almost tokenize your loyalty reward program in some way and create value out of it and then have it be transferable too to see, you know, whose loyalty reward programs actually provide value and people are actually bidding those up or competing for them. I, there's a lot of mileage here with this story of where this could go. And, and we should maybe just piggyback on that and point out that it uh, looks like McDonald's this week uh, also noted that they're going to go big now and expand their loyalty program that they had in test. I didn't hear crypto as part of that. Okay. I mean, but it, but it is an interesting kind of a thought here when we think about omnichannel, right? Is that, you know, when you get all the way down through the channel and you've made the sale, um, hopefully, you know, in an omnichannel way, then for any rewards that are given, do you want that to come back within a sort of a closed loop? right? Like redeem my Starbucks points at Starbucks for more Starbucks drinks. Or do you want to have that be sort of a, I don't know, non-walled garden, right? Where I can take it, arbitrage it, walk out the door, use it somewhere else. I think that's sort of an interesting, both financial, but also marketing question. I think it's sizzle. You think it's what? Yeah. Dan, what do you think? So I'm, I mean, I'm long on cryptocurrency. Like I, I I'm holding, I've, I'm buying more. And I think that um, I think Gary said it well. I think it's a good marketing tool to attract uh, the engagement and loyalty of a certain target audience, right? So, SoFi is clearly trying to, you know, go after people that are that are engaged in this stuff. And I think, you know, that's what companies should do. It's like be precise, be be tight, be targeted, and get it right for those targets. And I think um, the point about transferability, I think, is an interesting one. I mean, that's you know, you kind of are seeing PayPal and others make this a lot more normal. And so you don't have to do it in kind of um, as crazy many hoops to jump through anymore. And so I think as it becomes more normal, uh, you'll see more of this, frankly. I, I'm I'm long on the whole idea. Yeah. So Dan's probably the, the already the million, the Bitcoin millionaire here in the group. I wouldn't be surprised. But and why are you thinking this is sizzle? I think it's it's marketing. I mean, it's I don't think that it's two percent no of ca- it's two percent of cash back, and it's giving you like how much of a Bitcoin are you actually buying? Like, and what are you going to do with that Bitcoin? It's it's like like yes, it's a great marketing tactic, but are, is this going to turn people into like crypto investors? No, I think this saves somebody the Google search of how do I buy Bitcoin because their bank card is doing it now. I mean. I don't know. So you're not into this. Okay. I'm into crypto. I'm just not into this particular company's approach to it outside of the marketing sizzle. But oh, okay. That, okay. That, that's just me. 
All right. Well, in the interest of time, I'm going to close things up because I don't want Professor Jim to send me to detention. That brings back horrible memories from my childhood. Uh, I want to give a special happy birthday, as we do every each and every week, to Roma Downey, one of my faves, Adrian Palicki, and George Clooney, the man who, if my wife left me for him, I think I would applaud her for doing so. And remember, if you can only read or listen to one retail blog in the business, make it Omnitalk. Our Fast Five podcast is the quickest, fastest rundown of all the week's top news. And our thrice weekly newsletter tells you the top five things you need to know each day and also features special content exclusive to us and just for you. And it's all within the preview pane of your inbox. You can sign up today at www.omnitalk.blog. Thanks, as always, for listening in. Please remember to like and leave us a review wherever you happen to listen to your podcast or on YouTube. Thanks to Jim. Thanks to the class at the Kellogg Business School today for being with us, for sharing your thoughts. It was so much fun to do this. On behalf of all of you and on behalf of Anne and myself, as always, be careful out there. Omnitalk Fast Five is brought to you with the help and support of the AM Consumer and Retail Group. Bayonam Consumer and Retail Group is a management consulting firm that tackles the most complex challenges and advances its clients, people, and communities toward their maximum potential. CRG brings the experience, tools, and operator-like pragmatism to help retailers and consumer products companies be on the right side of disruption. And also, Takeoff. Takeoff is transforming grocery by empowering grocers to thrive online. The key is micro-fulfillment small robotic fulfillment centers that can be leveraged at a hyper-local scale. Takeoff also offers a robust software suite so grocers can seamlessly integrate the robotic solution into their existing businesses. To learn more, visit Takeoff.com. 